Good morning, New Hope Church. Glad to see you. Glad to have you here. If you're new here, welcome. Glad that you're with us. Um, if you don't know uh, Bradley, who just led worship, he filled in for Michael this morning, who's the normal worship leader here at New Hope. And Michael got away for a weekend with his wife, Marla. So good for them. He'll be back next weekend. But thank you, Bradley, and the worship team. Grateful for what you did. So there's been uh, obviously some changes this week in a kind of a national setting with the mask thing. Um, caught a lot of people by surprise. I probably dare say it caught everybody by surprise. Um, so we were moving towards that in the month of June if everything retained its normal decline status. But here we are this morning with those who are able to take their mask off, great. And for those who have to still wear them for medical reasons or for comfort reasons, great too. But we're all together as a church family and many people joining us virtually online right now. So very glad to have you here. Um, our strategy moving forward with the COVID protocols is that on the first weekend of June, we're going to restore the cookies and coffee to the end of the service, right? What? You're more excited over that than you are over the mask thing. No kidding, the first service had the exact same reaction. It's like, yes, cookies again. So look for that in the first weekend of June. They, they have their orders placed and, um, if for the, the supplies and the materials. So you can see that in a couple weeks. Um, I'm going to ask you this morning, if you would, maybe if you have a Bible with you or electronically or hard copy, you might want to use as an anchor verse, um, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John um, 3, 1 and 2, actually. I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, if, if you're new here, this is for your benefit. We've been working through a, a series that'll take us through the summer called Hard Questions. And so far we've looked at why does the church do baptism? And what's up with why I should believe the Bible? Why should I believe it? And we've examined several hard subjects along the way and we had a baptism weekend in there. And then last weekend we looked at Deborah, the story of Deborah for Mother's Day, which was a, a narrative, a story. Those are always fun. But this particular story this morning is about you, and this is about your story, and it comes out of the question, what happens at death? And I have that question on a regular basis asked of me. How we respond to that particular question depends entirely on one major component, whether or not you know Jesus as your Savior. I'm going to do a little poll right now. I'm going to ask you this morning to say amen if you agree with this statement. Jesus is my Savior. Amen. Okay? So we're in, in commonality of mind. Perhaps not everyone. Some individuals are new to church and they're investigating and trying to understand this. I, I meet, whether or not you would understand that, people who have never been in church before on a regular basis. Last weekend, a couple came to me and said, this is not only our first time at New Hope, it's our first time in our life ever being in a church. So it's a, it's a reality in, yeah, glad that they were here, right? Um, reality is in society. A lot of people have questions. They know that the church addresses hard questions. And so we're here this morning to address this hard question. What happens at death? Well, my role is to equip you with biblical truth. And my understanding of biblical truth is that the two most serious passages in the Bible related to death are separated only by six chapters. You find them both in John. John chapter 8 and John chapter 14. Let's start with John 14, one of the most serious verses, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then six chapters earlier, 
John chapter 8. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So one of those verses speaks of a horrible outcome. One of those verses speaks of life, life with God, being in the presence of God. And there's one factor separating those two opposite destinies. That one factor is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who makes the declaration. So I come into this passage this morning with this question saying, what happens at death? That's what we're going to explore. Before we do that, I would love to pray with you. Would you join me in prayer right now? Father, we come before you and we ask that you would illuminate our minds. This is your word. It's not my word. It, it's yours. And it belongs to me because you've gifted it to me and to every person who's listening this morning. It's your gift to us. So God, in response to that, we ask that because you gave it to us, you would make things clear to us that we might not otherwise understand if it weren't for the intervention of your Holy Spirit. So we pray for that. We pray that your Spirit would make things clear. We thank you for a new day. We thank you for a new beginning. This is the day that you've made, and we rejoice in that. And so we move forward now, Father, asking that you would help us to understand these things that are difficult to understand because of your Spirit's presence here this morning. We pray for that in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. The Bible declares death to be exactly what we mortals have seen it to be. Death is separation. What once was is gone. It's not by accident that the Marvel comic series included in the Avengers program, the lead character, an individual by the name of Thanos. Thanos, in the Greek language, Thanos, Thanatos, is death, the action of death. Everything associated with Thanos or Thanatos is death. What happens at death? Well, death is separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, and it sounds like a majority of you are from individuals who said, amen, if you're in Jesus, you will go to be with Christ without delay at death. Jerry believes that. The rest of you are kind of waiting. If you believe it, say amen. Okay. Philippians 1 speaks to that, but there's perhaps no more definitive passage in the Bible than in the Corinthians series, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, specifically in 2nd Corinthians. Let me put this on the screen for you, 2nd Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. If you know Jewish reasoning and the way that individuals thought in the first century, Paul's playing on Jewish reasoning. He's saying, not this, but that. Not this, but that. Not in the body, but present with the Lord. So if your body is dead, physically dead, then you're present with the Lord. No delay, you're in His presence. So we, we understand in the simplest terms, death is a conscious relocation from one place to another. And I say conscious intentionally. Conscious meaning there's no delay. It's an immediate function. The moment your body ceases to form on this planet, it is in the presence, whether in God's presence or in the presence of hell. It depends on your location destiny. 
For those who believe in Jesus, we're just going to hit the basics this morning, and I'm going to cover the basics with you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, what your destiny is, what will happen to you at death? First component of this is, will we be ourselves at death? And the secondary component to that is, will we know others? Will we be ourselves, and will we know others? And I would say definitively, yes. When describing the return of Jesus, Paul wrote this. Look with me on the screen for Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, church people, people who were raised in church, understand that Paul's talking about what happens to the church, the rapture of the church referred to. Where you stand on the rapture of church, I don't know, but that's not what I want to bear down on this morning. What I want you to see is that phrase, together with them. To be with Jesus is to be involved in a massive reunion, not only with your friends, not only with your family who are in Jesus Christ also but with all those saints that you've never met. In other words, you will have relationship with Noah and Daniel and Moses and Esther and Ruth and Paul and Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary. (laughs) There's a lot of Marys in the Bible, right? There'd be a lot of individuals that you haven't met yet. Now, for that to be true... Something must be true also. You must retain your individual identity and your memories. A lot of individuals approached me after the first service saying, wait, wait, I, I, I thought we wouldn't have memory of the things on earth because that could cause us pain. Let me circle back to that in just a minute. But your memories retained and also certain other characteristics. First, we are physical beings. We recognize that. We're spiritual beings. We're physical beings. We will be physical beings in eternity. Let me back that up from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Job said this, Job 19, verse 26, in my flesh I will see God. It's Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus in his resurrected body. In other words, after Easter Sunday, he says this, Luke 24, 39, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me. Also, Jesus identified people in heaven by name, by their identity. He referred to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in one particular passage that I'll show you right now in Matthew 8, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's referring to them in the first person. Let's go to the image of Moses and Elijah. There's a time when Jesus taps on the shoulder, Peter, James, and John, and he says, hey, guys, let's go for a hike. The rest of you guys stay behind, but Peter, James, and John, go with me up on the side of this mountain. And biblically, we would call it the Mount of Transfiguration. So they make their place up to whatever level they're going to on the side of the mountain. And John writes, we beheld his glory. Peter says it was like the afterburners came on. Jesus began to glow brilliant white, whiter than any launderer could wash clothes. He said his whole body glowed. And then in that moment, we're told that Moses and Elijah show up on the scene. And they're standing there talking with Jesus. Now, mind you, Peter, 
James and John have never met Moses and Elijah. They walked the planet long before Peter, James, and John, hundreds of years. So centuries before, they might have been recognized by people in public, but they haven't been seen for centuries. And immediately, Peter, James, and John recognize them and actually call them out by name. Even though it's been centuries since they walked the planet Earth, they still maintain their identity. Now, a name indicates an identity of an individual. That people in heaven can be called by the same name they had on earth demonstrates that they remain the same people, which touches on the secondary component of the question. Will we know others? Will we recognize our friends and our family? Yes. If so in the Old Testament, when a person died in a very general way, we would say that they were gathered to their people. Scripture indicates that in, in multiple places. One example would be Genesis 25. But if you want to drill down into a very specific way, you would go to 2 Samuel, and you would find David crying out something on the death of his son. So his infant baby has died, and David says this in 2 Samuel 12, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Specifically, David expects to see his son again, not a nameless soul or a faceless being without an identity, but that very specific child he's going to see again. You, you've lost family members, you can expect to see them again and know them. And the New Testament indicates even more clearly that our identities will remain unchanged. Perhaps you've never seen it before in the Lord's Supper, the, the night before Jesus is crucified in the Last Supper. Subtly, within that storyline, there's this verse that comes out in Luke twenty-two seventeen, and Jesus says this to the disciples that are gathered with him. Take this cup and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. If you go into that passage in Luke 22, you'll find in that exact same passage, Jesus says, I won't drink of it again until the kingdom comes and we'll drink it together. In other words, the disciples knowing each other gathered together doing a function together in heaven. If you know Jesus as your Savior, when you enter into heaven, you will be known as an individual. You will be known by your identity, and you will know individuals, which also means that when you enter heaven, your heavenly mansion that Jesus says He's preparing for you, you'll enter into that dwelling place one day, and it will be made, you'll find, specifically for you, not a series of nondescript government housing projects but rather something designed specifically for your personality. Personally, I'm gonna be asking for a cabin by the stream, okay? I'm good with that for the first thousand years, just do a little trout fishing. I love y'all, but I don't wanna see y'all for a thousand years. <laughs> I'm joking. I, I just, I, in my mind, that's a picture of total peace and serenity, just a cabin by a stream. Give me that, I'm good. But God knows what we need and he designs it specifically for us. And so he says, I go to prepare a place for you and it's designed for you. Dr. Randy Elkhorn probably wrote one of the most definitive books on heaven in our lifetime and in our generation. If you have a chance to get a copy of it and maybe even you can put it on Kindle, you, you might really enjoy reading that book because it answers a lot of the issues around heaven. But just let me show you a quote from Randy. He said this, what makes you, you? It's not only your body, but also your memory. 
personality traits, gifts, passions, preferences, and interests. In the final resurrection, I believe all those facets will be restored and amplified, untarnished by sin and the curse. Now, since he raised the issue of the curse, let's just take this component a step further. I would say not just like Adam and Eve. I think we can go a step further than that. Not just like Adam and Eve before the fall. Although they were perfectly created and fresh from the hand of God with beautiful muscle structure, beautiful in their appearance, incredible mental capacity, their intellectual capacity far surpasses what we would understand today. So perfect in muscle form, perfect in spiritual relationship form, able to walk with God and actually have meaningful conversation with Him. But I would say scary smart. Scripture says this, God brought the animals before Adam and whatever name Adam gave them, that was their name. I'd be good with mouse. I could probably get to zebra. I might get stumped on camel. But how big does your vocabulary need to be to name all of the creation of the planet Earth? And God said, that's good. I'm good with that incredibly smart individuals, and they could actually walk with God and have meaningful conversation. And even though that is true, I would say they were still less than what you will be. And that might cause you to draw an extra breath, but I'll say it for this reason. I can say that because the Bible indicates that you will be a new creation, a resurrected body, which will have greater capacity than these earthen vessels of clay that we're currently trapped inside of. Presently, you are made of mud, no insult intended, but of dust you are and to dust you shall return, the book of Genesis says, right? So we understand that's what we're made of now. However, we understand that even the molecular structure of this planet has been subjected to the fall. In other words, it wasn't just man who fell, but all of creation was affected. And so God uses the phrase, thorns and thistles the earth is going to produce. Genesis 3.17, God's dealing with them on the issue of the fall of man. Look at this passage. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That passage in the Bible tells me that all disease in this world stems from that moment in time. God created everything perfect, everything falls because of sin, the molecular structure somehow changes, and God says, no more. Thorns and thistles now. Thorns and thistles are going to come forth, and then death and decay and destruction, and Adam and Eve knew what death was because God said, in the day that you sin, you're going to die, and they hadn't known death up to that point, and thus the downward spiral of all of creation, and everything continues to degenerate. But Jesus comes along and says, but then, then in the future, all things will be made new, Revelation 21, no more sin presence, no death, therefore no decay, which to my understanding means a completely new biological life form as we have never known. No decay, no death, and you will have a structural, physical, biological form built for eternity, not of the dust of the earth, but of a new creation, according to what God has said. What that translates for you and I today in 2021 is 
No makeup. No sit-ups, right? I'm up for that. I would be all in for that. Cosmetically, our world spends a fortune to enhance beauty because of the results of gravity and because of aging and the sun's radiation wreaking havoc on our outer shell. I can speak to that personally. You can too. I know what I looked like at 22. And I think if I showed the mark of 22, a picture of the mark at 62, he'd be freaking out. Like, what? That's what I'm going to look like? No, thank you. St. Augustine is probably considered one of the greatest theologians to have walked the earth since the time of the disciples. Augustine lived in around 400 AD. 426 AD, I want you to see what he wrote about this very issue. The body shall be of that size which it either had attained or should have attained in the flower of its youth and shall enjoy the beauty that arises from preserving symmetry and proportion in all its members. <laughs> now, this next part really makes me laugh. Overgrown and emaciated persons, and this is why I'm laughing, because he's, he's so polite. He's not saying you're fat. He's saying you're overgrown, right? Okay. So you're not fat, you're not skinny. Overgrown and emaciated persons need not fear that they shall be in heaven of such a figure as they would not be even in this world if they could help it. Now, that's a really interesting insight. You at your very best on this planet, what does that look like? Think to when you were at your very best physical shape. Maybe that's right now. Or think back to a time when you were at your very best physical shape and you thought that when you went running, you could run and nothing could stop you and you could just keep going and going and going until the next day when it really, really hurt that you did that very thing. When you were in your best mental shape, when you were in your best spiritual shape, and the Bible says, magnify that times a trillion and then throw out the formula because it hasn't entered into your mind all the things that God has in store for you. The most beautiful person that you have ever seen on this planet is still a person who's under the curse, complete with all the flaws associated with the fall of man. In other words, only a shadow of what God originally intended for humanity to be. So I'm convinced that if you could physically see Adam and Eve today as they were in the garden before the fall, their beauty would leave you speechless. It'd be like, what? What am I laying my eyes on? I've never seen anything like that. Likewise, can you imagine what it was like for them to know what they used to be and to watch the decay of their body and that of their children? I've often wondered how many times they walked outside of the garden after they were thrown out and said, I used to be there. That used to be my home. How horrible would that be, the phenomenal regret? I think I'd just avoid that neighborhood and stay away. Will we, as a result of this, have special abilities? I'm going to answer that question by saying yes, definitively, but I'm going to show you why I would answer it that way. Will we, at death, have special abilities? 
And this is where 1 John chapter 3 plays into it. So if you have your Bible open there, you might just want to look at that, that with me just for a moment. Jesus' appearance is what this is speaking of here. And in his resurrected form is much of what we base this on, but also on several other passages. So when I talk about special abilities, know that that's what I'm basing this in. Jesus' appearance after the resurrection and several other passages that the Bible supports. 1 John 3 is kind of a declarative statement by the oldest living disciple. John's the only disciple that lived his whole life out. He died somewhere in his late 90s, maybe around the age of 100. We're not sure specifically, but he's the only one that didn't die as a martyr. And when you read 1 John 1 and 1 John 2 and 1 John 3, you find him speaking of things that he saw as a young man. And he's the one who said, we beheld his glory. But in 1 John 1, he starts out with a different statement. 1 John 1, 1 John 3, 1, he says, What manner of love is this, that we should be called the children of God? Now, in our world, we're, we're taught from childhood that we're all children of God. Well, in a very generic sense, that's true. We're all God's creation. But in a very specific sense, the way that John is speaking of it here, when he says, what manner of love is this? That we should be called the children of God? He's looking at it through a very clear mindset because he's the one who laid eyes on the resurrected Jesus. And you find him when you get to verse 2 saying, beloved, now, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. And he goes on to say, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. John's using the not this, not that argument. We're not going to be like that, like we used to be. We're going to be like him. And we're going to see him just as he is. So in Luke 24, we find the statement about Jesus in his resurrected body, yet he still has flesh and he still has bones. And he says this about himself in verse 37. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his feet and his hands. And now you understand why John said in 1 John 3, what? What manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God? And, and when he appears, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. And then we put together scripture and we begin seeing what Jesus was like. So let's add to that, not just that he had flesh and bones, but also this from John 20, 26, we see that Jesus could appear and materialize in a room, passing right through hard surfaces. We know that when he was resurrected from the tomb, he went right through stone. He was already out of the tomb before they opened the tomb gate. Before the stone was rolled away, he passed right through the fabric. And then we see this in Scripture, John 20, 26. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. So a capacity to appear, and then we find a capacity to disappear right out of the visible realm. 
Luke 24, 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Well, that's a whole new level of hide and seek, right? Like, I don't know that you're gonna be playing hide and seek in heaven. No fair, he disappeared. This ability also is amplified by clearly an ability to cover vast distances momentarily. Angels have the same capacity, yet they also, we see scriptures indicates, the disciples also indicate that he came and he sat down with the disciples and he ate with them. Look with me at this, Luke 24, 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. One more step. And I, I think I can support this from Scripture, but it, it really kind of boggles the mind. There's clearly an ability to defy gravity. Uh, just bear with me on this. In Acts chapter 1, we see Jesus ascending. It says this in verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So a capacity to hover, to fly? Well, we know that the angels can, and Jesus is not less than the angels, and John says we will be like him. I, I don't know what else to do with that. Now, some will suggest, and many theologians actually have suggested that those are attributes of Jesus. He's the God-man. He, he will be like that. Well, perhaps, but Scripture says we will be like with him. And so I'm going to go with that. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong because I'll be good just with being in eternity. How about you? If there's no special abilities, okay. But that's what Scripture seems to indicate here. Uh, just one other step further, not in the realm of special abilities, but in the realm of restoration of not just your body, but your mind. Perhaps you think you've achieved the greatest mental capacity that you possibly can achieve. When Jesus asked the disciples to stay awake and pray with him while they were in the garden, what did they do? They fell asleep, right? And Jesus said to them in response, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. You have the desire, but your body doesn't match the spiritual desire. You're weak in that capacity. And so he says specifically to them, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Scripture indicates that at death, when you transition to the next life, if you are in Jesus, you will have an uncorrupted body that works in harmony with an uncorrupted mind. That'd be a beautiful thing. Here's a last component before we come into the end. Will we become angels? It's a huge misunderstanding in our society. I don't know about in other parts of the world. I hadn't had conversations with people like that about that issue when I was in Africa. I don't know where the rest of the world stands on it, but in the United States, people are messed up on that thought. A lot of people think that when they die, they're going to become angels. The answer would be no. Angels are angels. Humans are humans. Angels are another class of God's creation. 
and they don't earn their wings. Sorry to blow your Christmas image of a wonderful life, but they don't earn their wings. They were created with everything that they need from the hand of God, just like you were to exist in the presence of God. They have all the equipment necessary. So we understand they were created with every component to be in God's presence. They can appear and they can disappear and they are mighty warrior beings and they are bigger, stronger, smarter, and faster than what we are and highly intelligent, designed for a very specific purpose. But I would say that if you became an angel in eternity, you would become less than. And I say it very specifically for this reason. Angels were designed and built to serve, primarily to serve God, and secondarily to serve God's creation. In other words, specifically, humanity. When the writer of Hebrews begins speaking about angels in Hebrews chapter 1, he said this in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about the reality that a guardian angel has been assigned to you, but we see indications of that in Scripture. In heaven... Humans will be beings superior over the position of angels. In other words, we're told in the Bible that you will govern over the angels. Look with me on the screen at this. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So one day, you're going to meet some angels. Angels who are super smart, and those individuals who have followed you and protected you all of your life, how fascinating will it be to have a conversation with them, even if they've watched you since childhood? Matthew indicates that there's angels assigned to children. How fascinating to speak with someone who's been with you since the moment you were born, every moment of your life. What will that be like to walk and talk with someone who's not only seen you since the moment you were born, but has been around since the creation of the earth? They're very ancient. They've been here since creation. And so they've watched every moment of history. And so we will learn from them. But likewise, they learn from us. And I want you to see that. Watch with me on the screen. 1 Peter 1.12. The things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. What's Peter talking about there? He was talking about salvation by grace through faith. Those are things the angels long to look into and to understand. Why? Because they've not known grace. They've seen it in action. They long to look into it. But when the angels rebelled, the fallen angels, the demons rebelled against God, there was no grace. There was no mercy. There was the immediate judgment of them. But to you, this unique creation of God, God extended mercy and grace. And the angels long to look into it. And therefore, they will learn from you. And here comes this component of will we have memory Will we have memory of the things on earth? I would say definitively, yes. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. 
I think we would all agree that having memory constitutes a capacity to retain information. Eternity in the Bible is spoken of as an experience to learn new things, therefore a capacity to retain, but it's also filled with a time of memories. Specifically, we're told that we will spend time in eternity praising and worshiping God. Now, how does that work if you've had a memory wipe? How does that work if you don't have any memory? It would be very difficult to praise God if you don't know what you're praising Him for. In other words, retained memory from what you were saved from. So that's why you find John writing in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 about something he heard that was remarkable in heaven. Look with me on the screen at this. John chapter 5 and verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. You aren't going to be able to do that if you don't have memory of what you were saved from, but also one step deeper. We see in Revelation chapter 6 that all the saints gathered before the altar ask God a question. Look with me at this, Revelation chapter 6 verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. See, there's a very clear awareness of what's going on on planet earth that something hasn't happened, that something is supposed to happen, and in heaven an awareness that God has not yet carried out His plan. So there's a conjunction of knowledge between the things of earth and the things of heaven, and they're completely dialed into the reality. It hasn't happened yet. How long, O oh Lord, before you're going to do this? There's no memory wipe here. There's a complete awareness. Now, just to lessen the weight of that, let me ask you this question. What are you most looking forward to? I think many people would just say, I just want to see Jesus. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Well, besides the obvious of eternal life, and besides the obvious of seeing God and laying your eyes on Jesus and, and a perfect body and a reunion, what are you most looking forward to? I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. I want to hear Jesus sing. Scripture says he does that. Did you know that? I mean, it makes sense. God created music, right? So while I love Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and I, I really enjoy listening to people like Adele, and, and I really appreciate individuals like George Strait, and I, I think Pavarotti's got a phenomenal voice or had a phenomenal voice, and gratefully we have recordings. But I want to hear Jesus sing. Look with me at this, Zephaniah 317. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. What a beautiful thought that we get to hear the reverberation of God's voice as he sings. So let me land this plane with you regarding this hope of heaven. What happens at death? 
Well, the hope of heaven is the reason why we named New Hope Church, New Hope Church. This hope, actually it comes from Hebrews 6.18. Look with me on the screen. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. In the Bible, the word confidence could be interchanged with the word hope. Hope and confidence. It, it could say new confidence out on the side of our building. Kind of hard to fit it on the stationery, but we could say that. New hope is the hope that we're speaking of that's a, a biblical hope. It's not like the earthly hope. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's not in relation to something we wish could happen. I could say this. I really hope the Detroit Tigers win the pennant this year. And it would be a misplaced hope, right? I'd be wishing that something would happen. And that's the way the world uses the word hope. I wish this. I, I hope for that. But the Bible speaks of hope as a confidence, a reality that has not yet been realized. So when the God who cannot lie says, this is what's going to happen, that's a confidence in something that has not yet happened. Our God says that He placed eternity in everyone's heart. Ecclesiastes 3.1 speaks to that issue. Look with me on the screen. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also sent eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. What? He's saying that every soul on this planet has a manufacturer's specification right from the one who made them. The Creator specified something about His creation. God's saying, even if people deny it, everybody knows in their heart that eternity is real. And there's a hope for that eternity. So 3,000 years ago, when Solomon wrote that verse down, he was recording his search for fulfillment. If you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes before, I encourage you to do that. You're looking at one man's journey who had all the wealth in the world and all the intellect in the world. He combined his wisdom with his money, and he set out to find pleasure in everything he could chase after. And if anyone could chase after every conceivable avenue of satisfaction, it was Solomon. So Ecclesiastes details his pursuit of pleasure, and he explored it all. And he said, there's nothing that I didn't hold back from me. And at the end of it, Solomon was crushed by the realization that on his own, he could not fashion a pleasurable enough existence to say, that did it. That fulfilled my needs. And so when you read Ecclesiastes 3, you find the implications for that statement are staggering. Because God said, I said eternity in everyone's heart. And people are going to look for eternity. God created us for it. But he goes on to say, we can't find it on our own. So when you see Jesus speaking in such emphatic terms the night before he's crucified, you find him speaking of things that have been committed to you as a hope, a biblical hope, with a confidence that Solomon didn't quite understand. And he was searching for it in other ways. So Jesus says this in John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that 
you also may be where I am. The most important component I pull out of that passage is heaven is real. Jesus speaks of it in terms that make it as real as New York or London, a real place filled with real people, with an enormous city teeming with people. So you find Jesus on the cross the day after making that commitment, speaking to a thief on the cross, and the thief expresses belief in Jesus in the last moments of his life. And Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise today. Look at me on the screen, Luke 23, 43. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. Not only because of what it contains, but before also for what it does not contain. There is a constant on our planet. Something surrounds us every single day. You woke up with it this morning. We have learned to live with it because it's all we know. It's persistent, it's ceaseless, its effect never, ever changes. Because of the fall of man, there is no rest. And I don't mean physical rest. I don't only speak of physical pleasure. I'm speaking of something bigger than that. Every single time we achieve a degree of victory over an obstacle on this planet, there is always another crisis looming on the horizon. No rest. It seems like COVID is in your rearview mirror. All of a sudden, the world blows up in the Middle East and the Middle East is on fire again. The Middle East fire is going to go out and there'll be another crisis and there will be something to occupy your mind. There is no rest. There's always another crisis coming around the corner. Never do we hit a point in which we get a sense of it's all going to be good from here on. Finally, I can breathe. Everything is just good. But the Bible says heaven's not like that. It's much greater. It's not like anything that we imagine. The truth is, whatever you've imagined this morning, you haven't begun to grasp one billionth of the creative mind of God. Because me on the screen, coming into the end here, 1 Corinthians 2.7, we speak of God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages, and now he breaks into heaven talk. Verse 9, just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So I dare you this morning, name the very best vacation you've ever had. Name the very best dessert you've ever tasted. Name the very best relationship you've ever been in. Name the most magnificent building that you've ever seen. And it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what God has in store for you. King Jesus is getting ready a place for you, and we will be in that place. Knowing this is what happens at death has a profound effect on how you will live in this world. Most Americans, when they're asked the question about heaven... And they're asked if they believe in heaven, they're asked this following question, where, where do you expect to be when you die? So if you go out on the streets right now and you find individuals who are not necessarily raised in church and, and you say, do you believe in heaven? And they would say yes. And they would say in response, uh, do, do you expect to go there when you die? 
And most Americans will answer this way. I certainly hope so. I, I want to. Yeah, I think, I think I got a pretty good chance. When you're talking about eternity, you want to know that you know that you know for sure where you're going to be when you die. What happens at death? Years ago, when Dr. G. James Kennedy was still alive, he was invited to the White House with some world leaders. Dr. Kennedy is a pretty brilliant theologian, pastor in Florida for a lot of years. And this is during the era of Ronald Reagan. The world leaders were leaving the Oval Office, and Dr. Kennedy was the last one to go out the door of the Oval Office, and President Reagan was still in there. And he turned to him, and in hushed tones, he said to him, Mr. President, if, if you were to die today, could I ask you a question? He said, if you were to die today and stand before God, and God asked you, why should I let you, Ronald Reagan, into heaven, how would you respond to him? President Reagan put his head down and then said, well, I guess I'd have to say John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Good answer, President Reagan. That's the answer. That's how you know what happens at death. That is the answer. Our hope of heaven is wrapped in what Jesus did when he died for your sins and rose again. There is a reason that Paul wrote, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. The reason is because what happens at death is found in 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Because if you're in Christ Jesus, you will go to be with Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together, church. Lord God, I thank you for every single individual who's been part of this service, whether virtually or present in this auditorium. We've heard your word. And you've caused your Holy Spirit to speak through this and cause it to come alive. So God, I ask that you would translate what we've heard into activity in our behalf, that we would translate this information into speaking with friends and neighbors, individuals who don't yet know you. God, you've given us the greatest reason for hope in this world. And so many people don't understand it. So I ask that you would use us, use this church Magnify yourself through this church. God, bring people into the kingdom. Let them know the hope of heaven. I pray for this. And I, God, I ask also for your blessing upon this church. Bless these individuals as they go out now for having spent time in your word. Use us mightily for your kingdom. We ask this and declare this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's worthy of all praise and all God's people said, amen. If you need somebody to pray with you this morning over in the prayer room over there, there's individuals who would be happy to do that. I myself will be right here in front of the stage. If we haven't met before, I'd love to meet you after the service. In the meantime, have a great week.